Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for attending our webinar, Prescription for Success, addressing J-1 Physician Immigration Options and featuring our very own Jan Peterson. So my name is Amber, and I'm on the marketing team at Wright Constable and Steen, and I have the wonderful pleasure of working with Jan and her team as they tackle J-1 waiver physician issues. Before we begin, we want to thank you all, first and foremost, for your heroic service to Americans during this time of the deadly pandemic, where you're risking your lives every day in service of your patients. Our gratitude is truly endless. So our speaker today, Jan Peterson, as many of you know, has been a tireless advocate for J1 physicians for over 30 years. She co-founded the International Medical Graduate Task Force in 1990, and was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award for her work on behalf of J-1 physicians. She's active in bringing your issues to the White House, to Congress, and to the executive branch, resulting in many positive changes, as well as effectively representing thousands of physicians. If you do have questions remaining after the webinar, you can email Jan directly, and we will provide her contact info at the end of the webinar. So welcome again, and without further ado, I know you all didn't come to listen to me today, so Jan, I will go ahead and let you take it away. Thank you so much, Amber. And I wanna begin by thanking our amazing team here who put this together, Amber and Ola and Natalie to make this possible. If there are any technology issues, uh, I will blame Amber. <laughs> so let us know if we have any as technology issues. Uh, I wanna welcome everybody to the seminar today and to Thank you for taking time out in this 100 degree weather to listen and hear about your future. I want to give a shout out to all the J1 and H1 physicians who have been working tirelessly on the forefront of COVID, um, battling here a heroic battle. Um, there will be an article in the New York Times shortly by Miriam Jordan, who has interviewed some of you, clarifying what your issues are. And I also want to shout out to all the wonderful J1 physicians in the J1 Waiver Facebook group and to our advocates at PAHA, P-A-H-A dot U-S. It's a great advocacy group to advocate your issues. So we're going to walk you through and give you a roadmap on how to have a successful journey on a J1 or an H1 to get to the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. A green card, a great job, and a permanent home in America. So we're talking about prescriptions for success today. First of all, I want anybody with anxiety to get rid of it. You don't need to have it. There are plenty of waivers available. I'm hearing from people who sign, you know, July and August, a contract to begin in July 1st, 2022. So there is no hurry. That's the good news. There are plenty of waivers to go around. In fact, the situation is getting better. Uh, and we'll go on and explain why. All right, so you all know the deal we made for you back in 1994. It's a three, two for three deal. If you agree to work for three years in a medically underserved area, we will forgive the J-1 requirement that you go home for two. Probably there are some people who actually go home, not many, because even if you say it's only two years at home, it's somehow very difficult to negotiate a new job when you come here. So we're going to take you to the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Um, of course, the train is leaving the station now. It's about to leave, so you want to get, if you're, leave, if you're finishing your residency or fellowship in 2022, you want to be looking, but not signing the first thing that's put in front of you, first contract. And whether you're doing your training on a J-1 or an H-1, you will all get to the same endpoint of a green card, eventually. Okay, so... The overview for J-1, which you all know, and I'm going to do quickly, uh, Amber is going to make the PowerPoint 
we're using today available to you if you send us an email. So we have two flavors of international medical graduates in the US, the J1 flavor and the H1B flavor. So some of the differences I'll go through quickly. So the rundown, of course, you know your J2 spouse, if you have one, can work during the time you are a J1. There's a 30-day grace period at the end of your training on J1. You can often also get an additional extension. Stop, leave it there. Um, additional extension to take board exams in case your waiver gets tripped up along the way. Uh, there's a seven-year maximum in J-1 status, as you know, um, with a J-1 physician waiver through a state 30 program or a federal agency, you are exempt from the H-1B numerical limitation cap forever and ever and ever, even 20 years from now. Hopefully things will change and our wonderful doctors born in India will not have to wait so long. Okay, so the deal here is with the federal and state 30 waivers, you must work in a medically underserved area for three years. And it has to be underserved unless it's a flex 10 waiver, which we will get into, or at a VA hospital. Now, again, a cautionary note about signing the first contract you get without doing due diligence. One, don't do it. Stop, say, listen, what did what am I supposed to look for? We'll be, so because if you things don't work out in your initial waiver job, it is possible to transfer, but it's fraught with difficulty, anxiety, and a substantial cost to you in the transfer process. All right, so uh, we skip to slide six. Okay, so um, next slide, yes. Okay, now if things don't actually work out for you this year, what should you do other than go home for two years is there are other kinds of visas you can get while you're waiting. You may get a J-2, and again, uh, that's called flipping. So if you're generally both spouses or physician, one on a J-1, one on a J-2, so the J-2 has been, can do residency training or fellowship training on a J-2, and then that the J-1 doesn't have a job yet, so they can flip to J-1. It's called flipping from J-2 to J-1 and vice versa. However, be cautioned, and a lot of your attorneys may not know this, um, that you, the rules require you to depart for the United, from the United States and get all three of these visas, J-2, O-1, and F-1. Those, those are the visas you can get without a waiver. There are some others they are uncommon. So let's do it the other way. On the flip side, the only thing you can't do is obtain H or L status or an immigrant visa without a waiver. So those are a trip outside the United States, which are incredibly challenging when the embassies have been shut down for about a year and a half and are gradually reopening. Now, another way um, to function on a temporary basis without a waiver is the Canadian citizen exemption. So if we have any Canadians here, listen up. This increases your job opportunities because you may start work without a waiver. As it's only for Canadian citizens and we carved this exception out uh, probably about 1992. It's been around a while, um, but work with your lawyer on that. Hopefully we will be your lawyers. We're here to work with you, um, but make sure your lawyers, by the end of this session, you may know more than many uh, immigration lawyers about your options. So. Remember that every two weeks, I am sure I have a consultation with a Canadian doctor who doesn't know about the Canadian citizen exception. So tell your Canadian friends who think they have an exception. Let's say, let's say you're dying for a waiver in Florida or New York, which generally receives about 60 applications for, per year for their 30 slots, but you're dying to work there. And so as a Canadian citizen, you can begin work there on an H without a waiver and try again in subsequent years to get the waiver. 
Where do I have to go for two years if I actually decide that any, everything here is not meeting my needs? Um, this happens uh, sometimes. So um, don't make the mistake of going to the wrong country. And that does happen. So what is the right country? It's the country of last permanent residence, as indicated on your DS-2019. Look at that, and if somehow you made a mistake you, in, in completing your application for the DS-2019, get that coordinated. This happens a lot um, for people who do their go for two years to the Gulf states um, to work and find out that that doesn't count, even if they might not be able to go to their country, such as Syria. Um, so remember that, go to the right country. Okay, so your waiver options. What are the waivers of our waivers we're offering today? Uh, so we've got the interested government agency waivers. There are two parts to that, and they both have the same overall federal rules. There's the interested, federal interested government agency waivers and the state 30 waivers. Then in addition to that, those all have a three-year service requirement. Then we have uh, uh, two other types of waivers, hardship waivers and persecution waivers. Uh, and we'll talk a bit about those. Those do not have an employment service requirement but they have other burdens which may not interest you in it. All right, so let's go to the next slide, please. All right, uh, Amber loves ice cream as do we all, and she has done a beautiful graphic here. What flavor waiver is right for you? So we are gonna go through your choices there. Um, and let you know. So what is common to the Conrad State 30 programs? Under the Conrad State 30, it operates under the federal statute uh, enacted, uh, led by Senator Kent Conrad from North Dakota, and it passed in 1994. All right, so they all have fairly common requirements. However, each state department of health through which the waivers are processed can add on its own requirements and confuse, absolutely confuse all of you. What if I say, literally you wanna to talk to the state or talk to your attorney who will talk to the state because what's on their websites does not tell the whole story whether you can get a waiver. So what you have, everything that's common, when you must have an employment contract must be employment, you can't work as an independent contractor. It must be for full-time work, including 40 hours of direct patient care. Remember that phrase, direct patient care. Now, a lot of contracts list 32 hours of clinical care and maybe eight hours for admin, but that's gotta be in the contract or it will be sent back for amendment. All right, so the next one is you must agree to commence employment within 90 days of USCIS approval of the waiver and H-1B status. And people often worry about that and it generally turns out not to be a problem. Um, the state regulations, if you just look at the website, are going to say within 90 days of getting a waiver. Don't be tricked by that because when you have a J-1 waiver, it doesn't allow you to work. It allows you to not go home for two years. The H-1 is allows you to work. So properly stated, and we generally state approval of the waiver and H-1B status. If you get an early waiver or, you know, you sign really early and your waiver gets through the system in December or January, what are you to do? Um, you probably should not worry about that. I won't say that's universal, but we work with that. The purpose of that was to stop you from signing a contract. You know, you get nervous at the beginning of your second year of residency. Oh, what am I going to do? I got to get a waiver. What am I going to do? So you talk to your people in your programs, your attendings, and they say, okay, how about cousin Vinny? Let's make cousin Vinny hire you. So you get that a year and a half in advance and they say, wait, what's going on here. It's stuff like that. It's not people who do it during their last year of training. 
All right, for state requirements, the facility where you are going to work, look at your work locations and the addresses must be located in a medically underserved area. To find them, unless you come within the Flex 10 exceptions. Okay, so everybody needs to know about the Flex 10. Keep that in your notes. You can email us anytime with questions about it. Every, the federal law permits every state, territory, and possession to use 10 of its 30 waivers that it's allotted each year for jobs which are not physically located in medically underserved areas, but where the practice will be treating some patients who reside in medically underserved areas. So please ask me if you have any questions about that. So the willingness of the state to use its waivers for non-medically underserved areas is a direct function of whether what the demand is for their waivers in underserved areas. In other words, if they get 50 requests for medically, jobs in medically underserved areas, you're not likely to get a Flex 10 waiver. However, having said that, um, some states have agreements um, with academic medical centers to set aside some flex slots for them if the academic medical center is not located in an underserved area. And by the way, before we go further, um, we'll put in the chat box how to find if your area is medically underserved. You want to go to HIPSA, just uh, Google IPSA find by address, F-I-M-B. We'll put that in the chat box for you and just Google your address and that will help you figure out where the where your, if your job is qualifying as an underserved or it can only qualify as a flex slot. Okay, next item. And this is important and you probably haven't had to deal with it yet, but we have two cases which are, are have become iffy because of this. Um, most state 30 programs and all federal programs prohibit non-compete clauses. And that can be a deal killer for your dream job. What is the non-compete clause? A non-compete clause basically says, if you, Dr. Smith, do not work for me for three years, for the employer for three years, if you leave, you must work and you must, you may, you may not work in my town. In other words, if you either work for me or get out of town, so that's what they say. And they're very common. Uh, they're very common in non-visa doctor cases. They just say you can't work as a doctor within 20 miles of any practice location for two years. Okay, you don't, yeah, you don't want it. Employers want it. Um, the state 30 programs want them because their idea is that they're recruiting and retaining you. They want you to stay in the underserved area. So be aware that not all states, it varies by state whether they will pro permit or prohibit the non-compete clauses. Okay, liquidated damages clauses. Some states have what a liquidated, we're throwing in a little contract law here and we do end up doing a lot of that in connection with the J-1 waivers. Liquidated damage clause is related to the non-compete clause. It says, if you leave and go anywhere um, within a specified period of time, and certainly it generally says for the three years, you will um, need to pay your employer a certain amount of money. That's usually in the contract, liquidated damage clause. It makes their job easy. Um, the employer, if you have a, a falling out with an employer and you have a liquidated damage clause, um, those can probably be in uh, both federal and state uh, contracts because they are non-compete. It just says if you leave, pay me the money. You can compete with me. And that's a serious clause. Some employers have been starting to use those because they feel that they didn't invest a lot of money in J1 or H1 position to have them leave, you know, to have them leave during the contract and so forth. Um, all right, always and forever, the contract is three-year minimum. That seems rather standard and easy. 
not always. Um, sometimes there may be a problem with academic medical centers who it never issue a contract more than one year at a time. But however that works, that, that pretty much can't be waived at any time. All right, uh, state 30 programs permit all medical specialties, all, all, all specialties. Um, so uh, some of them give priority to primary care, some do not. The concerns about specialist primary care, of course, will be much less with the advent last year of the HHS expansion of their um, the types of waivers they will sponsor. So um, I see a lot of questions from our wonderful J1 Facebook group, which says, can I get a specialist waiver in X? Well, it depends on what X is. If it's real estate where you probably can't get one is California. Uh, however, um, this year they actually had leftover slots, so it may be possible. However, California is very undesirable on that point because they don't let subspecialists file their waiver applications until July 1st. And that's usually when you're supposed to start work. So right now they are processing waivers. I believe, if I'm correct, they had 10 waivers left over this year. So it varies year to year, but overall there are going to be more waivers available for everybody. Filing fees, uh, your employer will wanna know that. Some states have started charging pretty much very high fees for processing your waiver application. I believe Texas is 3,000. Um, let's see, there are a number of other states with a, a very high filing fee. So that's calculated into the employer cost. Application periods, that is what you're all very interested in. They vary very widely among states. You have different protocols. Some states are first come, first serve. Um, some states have an application period, and please, uh, when they say they have an application period, your next question is, okay, if they say they accept applications from October 1st to October 31st, does that mean everybody has to drive themselves mad and file on October 1st? No, because it's not first come, first serve. They take the entire entire batch of waiver applications they get between those two dates and they're considered equally. You don't get considered first because you got there on the first. And we always double check for all our clients with the state and make them specifically state, you know, it's equal, you're equal if you file on October 1st or 31st. A lot of states have that cycle. Illinois State 30 does, Kentucky does, um, I believe, uh, Indiana does, but there are a number of states that use that period. Another application period is our, our lottery states. And I can state unequivocally that I advocated to the end of the day, and so did a number of other my immigration lawyer colleagues, not to go on the lottery. There's no good reason. So first, Florida went on the lottery with no good reason. And so now Florida's on the lottery, and they get about 57 to 60 applications per year. I think they, they've been on the lottery three or four years. Maybe it's up to five now. Um, and so if you want Florida, you get in the lottery, um, apply during the lottery period, and we should, should know by probably Jan December or January. So if you want to go Florida, state 30, and you have no choice, you can't use one of the federal programs, then... Um, you want to have a plan B. Connecticut also went to a quasi lottery, but the good news about Connecticut is last year they did not receive 30 applications for their during their lottery period. So they have two weeks in October where they accept the applications. If they get less than 30, then and then the applications are complete, of course. That's always a given that you have everything they need, uh, then everybody wins. So everybody that filed during the first application period in Connecticut last year got a state 30 waiver and they did not use up their waivers until the beginning of February. So they had extra, so they reopened the application period. So those are good to know. Um, 
the Texas Texas has a very early waiver application period, so you should be aware of that. It's the first couple of weeks in September, and um, they are not first come, first serve either. So let's try another flavor on. If you don't like any, you don't like the state 30, let's talk about our beloved federal waivers. Okay, why do we love federal waivers? Most of them. We love them because, please remember this, they, federal waiver programs are open to accept qualifying waiver applications year round and unlimited in number. So I guess raspberry is my favorite flavor of ice cream. So that's really HHS waiver. Open year round, unlimited in number if you qualify. Now we're gonna go through their particular um, requirements for you. Now, Department of Health and Human Services, HHS clinical waivers. They are the agency which has truly done the most to help all the J1 physicians to get waivers. Last year during COVID, they expanded. So prior to last year, the type of employer was limited and the type of training was limited. So employers basically had to be a federally qualified health center. So we asked the, the HHS program manager, Mike Berry, a fantastic guy, if he would declare all of America, certainly during the pandemic as a medically underserved area and sponsor them. Well, he thought that was a little bit of a big ask, but what he did do was expand the qualifying employers to all entities which have a shortage score of seven or greater. Again, you wanna to go to your address, to the address that we put in the chat room to check if your facility has a HIPSA score of seven or greater. They have given out more than 300 waivers just this year. And the great news is that hospitalists are included. So demanding the hospitalists benefits you who may not qualify for the waiver, HHS. It frees up more and more state 30 waivers for use for subspecialists. So HHS will only do waivers for primary care only. No fellowship training usually. And as I said, hospitalists are included. Now, the caveat to fellowship training is stated by HHS in the following way, which we need for you to understand in planning your roadmap here, is that you may do some fellowship, but the rule is you have to prove that you will be at your waiver job within 365 days of completing your residency. That's 365 days. All right, and that means you'll have to work around. We did several this year and it works um, to get to work. You'll have to make arrangements with your program, you know, to give back some vacation or, you know, we put down, you want it, they're gonna start the last week in July and they have to be prepared to do so. So that is beneficial to people who do primary care subspecialties, um, such as geriatric medicine, uh, you know, pain medicine, whatever it is, some people want to do a one year. Of course, if the fellowship is longer than one year, this won't work for you, but it's great when it does. You have a ton of pressure taken off of your shoulders and your employer's shoulders, so the anxiety level should be greatly reduced um, if you take an HHS waiver. They do require recruitment. General, somebody just asked, does general surgery qualify for HHS waiver? No. And thank you for that great question. This, the primary cares are internal medicine, pediatrics, family practice, OBGYN, and psychiatry. And psychiatry, you want to be careful if you're doing a fellowship in child or adolescent. Um, that could be a problem. And remember, uh, when you're interviewing for these jobs, you want to ask if re what recruitment they've done. Uh, all many programs require proof of recruitment, and to a lesser or greater extent. Again, don't just read this date thirty or the 
it, the federal agency website. Uh, a lot of that is negotiable depending on the facts. Um, a couple of years ago, we had um, two of the three surgeons in a hospital um, die in a boating accident. So they didn't make them do any recruitment to replace the unfortunately deceased doctors. So we'll get to that. Somebody else asked, and I'm very happy to ask questions as we go along. General surgery does not qualify. Emergency medicine does not <coughs> qualify unless your residency training was in usually internal medicine or family medicine. All right, next slide. So we love HHS and uh, ARC is the next one, Appalachian Regional Commission. Uh, we have their website there. They will tell you the territory that they have jurisdiction over. So HHS has jurisdiction over all the country, but ARC is, has a geographic territory in, during, in which they will act. And it includes portions or all of 13 states beginning at the bottom of New York and going down to Mississippi. And on their website, they list their counties. The big new thing there, the extra scoop of ice cream is uh, a free extra scoop is that they will now sponsor subspecialties. And that came about around October of 2018. However, you have to have extra documentation and it won't be easy, but again, unlimited number, open your round. The other restriction on ARC and also HHS is that the job must be located in a health professional shortage area. That means HIPSA. All right, there are two lists of shortage areas, HIPSA and MUA. So ARC and HHS will not do uh, any areas other than HIPSAs. Okay, ARC has a lot of obstacles around in the path um, that requires a lot of work on the part of the employer and the employer. They require extensive recruitment for six months. Um, for six months at least, and you have to do medical school recruitment. Time after time, we found employers who say, okay, I'm, I've done all this recruitment, so we have to be sure to ask and we often help them compose the, the kind of notice that must go to medical schools. Contracts, oh, no federal waiver can have a non-compete clause, period, the end. Uh, the ARC has a 250,000 penalty clause. It's called damage clause, whatever you want to call it. It's rarely enforced. I wouldn't be intimidated by it. It has been, to our knowledge, since 1980s. Uh, ARC came around in 19, yeah, about 1987, about four times. And what that means is you sign a contract to say that you'll pay your employer $250,000. Um, I want to take that question. $250,000 if you leave the job within three years, if you don't find another job in the ARC reasons. ARC uh, has a habit of coming up with new rules ex post facto. Don't hate your lawyer for that. Your lawyer didn't forget anything by and large. They have new rules all the time. And there's a, a, a rumor to be a new rule this year that uh, ARC is going to determine how many waivers they think your area where you have a job is. Um, so yeah, about four times somebody sought to enforce that penalty clause. The unwritten rules that pop up after the fact, after you file, cause delays, $3,000 application fee. Uh, great question. Is there a minimum HIPSA score for ARC waivers? No, but HIPSA scores rarely go below seven. And if they do, there is some problem that can often be fixed. Uh, medical school recruitment means that the employer has to communicate that they have a job opening at, at their location at medical schools in the area. And that doesn't take a whole lot of time, so you still have time if they forgot to do it or did not, or likely didn't know they're going to do it. It is in on the very fine print on the ARC page. Okay, next slide. We're going to leave about 10 minutes for questions. Is that going to be enough, Owen? 
Okay, so we're going to go through DRA. We love the Delta Regional Authority. There's their website. They're much more generous with their waivers. That's why we gave them pecan, almond ice cream. Uh, they cover over 200 counties in those states listed, and their states are listed on their website. The employment can be any medical specialty. The employment can be located in either a HIPS or an MUA. They do require recruitment and they're very user-friendly um, if you can come within their areas. All right, next slide, please. Okay, the VA waiver, um, that's why we put lemons in there. Um, they don't often turn to lemonade. One problem with the VA waiver is that they take so long in terms of following their internal rigor, rigorous and often rigid and unreasonable protocol and you're out of time, you just don't have time. So all VA facilities count as medically underserved area. Now, saving grace may you may have a job offer for a joint VA university appointment. As long as you spend five eighths of your time at the VA, you can be sponsored. Uh, and subspecialists are heavily recruited. We, we don't see many VA waivers anymore. Um, beware of the timing. Okay, that you really have to have eight months to 10 months or so. Uh, someone just asked the timeline for the DRA. Uh, it used to be very quick, a few weeks. And back to timelines for a second, HHS is one to two weeks for approval. DRA got really bogged down during COVID and everybody, all, we all the lawyers are complaining that it takes months now instead of weeks. Next. Next slide, please. Okay, so here's a summary, the pros and cons. And at the top, you'll see our lovely ice cream to choose the flavor you want. Okay, advantages of state programs and disadvantages and comparing that with federal programs. State programs, may, the employer may want a non-compete clause, state may prohibit, it may be a, be a deal killer. State programs, there's more flexibility in job locations and including the Flex 10 slot. So Flex 10, only, only, only for state 30 waivers, not for any federal waivers. And almost all state programs permit primary care and subspecialties. Disadvantages of some of the state programs are the very burdensome paperwork. Um, we're working with New Jersey because employers found their, find their paperwork incredibly burdensome. Uh, slots can fill very quickly depending on the state. I said things have gotten better since so many big weavers are now siphoned over to HHS, particularly hospitalists, and hospitalists do use up a huge share nationwide of waivers. So all the hospitals moving, not all of them, but qualifying ones moving over to HHS creates more opportunities for those who don't qualify. Federal programs, no numerical quotas open year round. Disadvantages of some of the federal programs, DA lengthy processing times, uh, DRA and ARC have $3,000 filing fees. Uh, limitation to HPSA areas with ARC and HHS, but not with DRA. Uh, HHS requires a HIPSA score of seven or more. HHS prohibits subspecialists. There are some exceptions as we discussed and ARC will sponsor subspecialists. So that's your, that's your rundown here and I do wanna leave Time for questions. Next slide. After the waiver, okay, you got the waiver, what's next? As you all probably know, a waiver doesn't permit you to work. You have to go to a J, you have to go to an H-1B in most cases. So I've given you processing times on this slide. Please take a picture of it. it they vary a lot. And of course, COVID has messed everything up in terms of processing times. Um, the Department of State. So once the state approves your waiver, the next step is that the waiver entity, either the State 30 or the Federal Waiver Program, forwards your application to the Department of State. The Department of State Waiver Review Division has dramatically increased in its processing times. We are working with them to figure out ways 
to do it. My favorite project is called the SCAN project, that with all our technology, somebody should figure out how all waiver applications can be scanned. Because you will find and get very frustrated at the fact that you will know that the states, that the waiver agency sent forward your waiver application, and then you can't find it on the DOS website. The DOS has a website where you can all check the status of your waiver. So it's about four to 16 weeks, and that is really bad. Um, so if we all have any way to have input, we need a scan project. Um, and they will expedite. They were very good about expediting last year, not so good this year. They are they have gotten extra help. Some way, waivers go faster than others. Um, so, right, it will take at least two weeks, maybe four weeks, for the State Department website to register that they have your application. And this is really anxiety-provoking for you and for us. Did your waiver get there? And um, there are reasons for that, which I won't worry with, because actually you want, your employer wants you at work and you want to get to work. So now they're saying four to 16 weeks and USCIS approximately four to six weeks. So we have a little trajectory and we have your pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for you to think about. So basically once you get the waiver approved by the state or the federal agency, you will get there. Caveat, be sure to extend your J-1 status for the board exams, even if you start early, even if it looks like there will be no roadblocks preventing you to get to work by the typical July 1st. So uh, always extend for the boards so you can be in status and change your status after you finish your um, program. Uh, as you all know, you have a 30-day grace period, so you're if after your program ends, and you may file your change of status from J to H during that grace period. Next slide. Okay, you so say, how do I get a waiver job? Tell me. Well, what we found works is uh, these websites, 3rnet.org is a really good one because they employers um, willing to sponsor J-1 waivers list there. Um, so those are some of them. Um, take a photo of it if you need to. Okay, now reputable recruiters may be very helpful. I don't know, there are people report all types of experience, but one thing, one rule of thumb is never pay a recruiter to find you a job and beware of recruiters who find you job placement. Never. Reputable recruiters are paid by the employer. Now, recruiters, you, bought, you get tons of emails if you're in your final years or maybe before of training and tons and tons of emails and you write back, they find you're a J or right? they said, no, thanks. Now, one of your jobs in conjunction with your immigration attorney is to educate the recruiter so they can educate your prospect employer. Oh yeah, did you hear about, you know, you can do this kind of way, this is possible, that is possible. So you all likely know um, how to do that. Next slide, finding a job. Your friends are also a good source. Okay, if you get a waiver, if you get a job offer, if you go to an interview before you get the job offer, Keep your CV to one page for non-academic jobs and handwrite a thank you note to the assistant who set up your interview, the people you met, and to the person with the hiring authority. Okay, other tips that have worked, I learned these from all of you who've been so helpful in educating us, is before you go to your job interview, learn about the medical and civic community before your visit. Uh, for example, why is London, Kentucky named London? Uh, what is it famous for? Answer, the World Chicken Festival. Kentucky Fried Chicken. Okay, take your spouse with you to the interview. Common sense. When, and before your interview, ask to meet real estate agents, physicians, and others in the medical community, civic leaders, and tour the schools your children 
will be attending, if you have children, who will be attending school. That shows them you're interested. Now, this other one seems pretty common sense, but it isn't. Never ever fly in under the cover of darkness on a Friday night and fly out the next morning on a Saturday. That's a huge red flag. What did they don't what don't they want you to see? You know, if it's a clinic job, nobody's going to be in the clinic. What are you doing there? Um, probably won't get to meet hospital staff. It's, we're going to work in a hospital context. And as recently as two years ago, I had two doctors who had that situation and needless to say the job did not work out. If your spouse needs a job, don't be shy. Say so. In the small community, they're hiring both of you. And they want both of you to be happy. And we all want a happy spouse. Makes for a happy life. We know that. So that is really important to bring that up. Take your spouse's resume with you. Take your spouse and their resume. Never, ever have your spouse follow up on your job application. We've got it that you're all really busy working 12 days, 14-hour days. And... If your spouse isn't working, that's good. Employers pretty much universally say your resume goes in the wastebasket if the spouse is the follow-up person. Um, okay, we got that. Don't rush without doing your due diligence on the job and the community. It's not that difficult to do. Go to the local diner. It's a rural area. Go to the local diner where all the guys have breakfast. They'll for sure ask you who you are immediately. You'll get the talk and they'll tell you, and I said, oh, the you find out all kinds of things you won't find out during your formal interview and will help you to make the right choice. So remember, we just don't want to have you sign the contract and then try to get out of it. That's really bad. All right, so we told you how to find the jobs. We're going to go a few minutes over. Uh, next slide, please. We're gonna talk a bit about her, her hardship and persecution waivers very briefly. We'll be happy to have consultations with anybody on any topic here. Hardship waivers, you've all heard of them. Um, hardship and persecution waivers have in common that you can apply anytime you're training, anytime. All right, so that means during your first year, if appropriate. A hardship waiver must show two hardships. One, if you're, you, you have to have an anchor relative who will suffer the exceptional hardship. It cannot be to you, the J-1 physician. So you have to show that exceptional hardship if the qualifying relative remains in the U.S. and you, the J-1, go home for two years, and also exceptional hardship if the U.S. citizen or permanent resident spouse and or child go home with you for two years. Processing time allowed for 12 to 14 months. They have been going faster this year. Uh, I would say both. The great news is there's a very high approval rate. Uh, you can find that on the Department of State J-1 waiver website. It's close to 100%. Now, don't get deluded by that. You know, if you're in Canada, if you're from Canada, oh, I can get a hardship waiver because my spouse can't come with me because he or she is still pregnant. No, don't get excited by that. The reason for a high approval rate anecdotally is that Physicians self-select and they go through it carefully. They very often have very good lawyers who understand the situation. Um, so, of course, they're unlimited in number and available throughout your training, even your first year. Now, um, same thing with persecution waivers. Very often, uh, hardship and persecution waivers, sometimes we file both for the same person. So, if you're from Syria and you have a U.S. citizen spouse or child, you're probably going to file both. Um, and personally, we file both and some both, sometimes both get approved, but you only get one waiver approval. So the other rule I want to make sure you know is one waiver per customer. Um, if you get one waiver, you're stuck with it. If you get a state 30 and in January and in March, you get a hardship waiver, you're stuck with the state 30 waiver. All right, you're stuck with the first one you get, but you can simultaneously file for an IGA federal or state 30 waiver, hardship and persecution. So you can do three at once and see which one works for you. Again, remember the long time on the hardship waivers and persecution. 
Next slide. Okay, I've just gone through very high approval rate, no employment service obligations, can work anywhere in theory, and go straight to green card if eligible. Okay, you cannot change if you have to have an H-1B as a bridging visa with the hardship or persecution waiver, you cannot change status in the U.S. from J-1 to H-1. You must depart the U.S. and get an H-1 visa. And you must have a cap-exempt employer. All right, next slide. My magnificent tech team told me to hurry up here, so I'm going to speak faster. And again, we will send, we will make uh, the slides available one way or the other, and we will take care of that either email to all attendees or you can request them. All right, alternate options. Everything's the way you have your dream job, and it's not going to happen for you this year for a J-1 waiver and the year that you need it. What are you going to do? Well, you can have an O-1 visa. A lot of you talk about them, want to do them, and if you qualify as being a physician of extraordinary ability, and I says many of you are, if not most, right? You must be of extraordinary ability. You have to leave the country to get that visa. Second workaround is a physician national interest petition and an I-485. This will not work if you were born in India and China because of the decades-long ring card line, you cannot file the 485. That is, you simultaneously pursue LP green card, green card through a physician national interest petition without a waiver. So if you, you want to try next year, you didn't get it this year, that is an option in many states um, to get, you have to have the support letter from the State Department of Health. Okay, and then am I, are you, are you going to say, Am I stuck working for this employer whom I don't know if I'll love for five years? No, you have to work a total of five years in underserved areas. It doesn't have to be the J-1 waiver employer. Okay, always remember to extend your J-1 status, whether it looks like everything's hunky-dory or not. There's also political asylum or TPS for those of you who qualify. Many countries qualify, and you all know it, Venezuela among doctors, Venezuela, and Syria. All right. Now, H-1B physicians, we're going to run through the rules really quickly. We did start a few minutes late, so we'll go a few minutes late. So the H-1B process for J-1 waiver physicians through the interest of government agency or state 30 waivers. You must go through the H-1B step at some point. So you only get credit towards your three-year employment commitment if you work in J-1 status. Sorry, if you work, excuse me, in H-1B status and get the change of status. Okay, you can file it. How early can you file your H-1 petition? As soon as the Department of State recommends approval of the J-1 waiver. Sorry, we have a typo on the screen there. No need to wait for final USCIS approval can save a couple of months that way. You cannot file your H-1 petition more than six months before the anticipated, the underlying anticipated start date. It may not be the start date that happens, but anticipated. Okay, and the start date should not be more than 30 days after the expiration of your J-1 status. H-1B petitions approved up to three years at a time. Uh, there's a total of six-year limitation in H-1B status. That, too, can be waived through filing a green card petition. All right. If you have any questions about which employers are cap-exempt, shall we skip to that slide? Um, it comes up every day of the week. Um, so this is generally public or nonprofit institution of higher education, like if you're employed by... University of Pennsylvania, nonprofit organization that has an affiliation agreement with the university. That has the nuances of that should be worked out between your employer and the lawyer. Okay, this is the third one is going to be important to you and maybe perhaps confusing. The H1, the third example is the H1B employer is either a nonprofit or profit organization whose physicians work at least 51% of the time at a not-for-profit cap-and-sample institution. 
This exemption often applies to hospital-based medical practice, such as hospitalists, anesthesiologists, radiologists, pathologists, surgeons, sometimes cardiologists. And please, no cheating on the 51%. 51% of your work time has to be certified to be a cabinet center. So if you're a hospital-based total practice, you know, the radiology practice totally in the hospital, anesthesiology, et cetera, you're good to go. But what about a division of time such as cardiologists? Then that has to be worked out and you have to make sure that you're there 51% of the time and you don't skimp on that. That ends our presentation. We will take, we've got a lot of questions here. I will get to them. Um, we probably can have six more minutes. Uh, so get your questions up there. I do answer them fast as one would hope. So this is the first question. Pathology for HHS, absolutely not. Okay, what's HIPSA score does ARC require? Um, they do not require a particular score. They also are tricky about that. So if you want to consult with us or, you know, um, by the way, we're available to be your lawyers. And we'd love to. I see some of our existing clients there. Oh, goodness, I hope there's no question I forgot to answer. Timeline for DOK. Do we do contract reviews? Yes, we do. And what we review them for is because if we are, it depends on who we're representing, if we jointly re remember this, because a lot of you tell me, oh, well, that's the employer's lawyer. I can't even remember their name. I hope you'll remember mine, Jan Peterson. But they said they don't know the lawyer's name. But in fact, if you shouldn't feel like they just represent their employer, because legally they jointly represent you and your prospective employer. And Keep that in mind. Sometimes it feels like to you that they're on the employer's side and that's understandable and sometimes that does happen. So um, yes, we do contract review. For, um, next question, first you get the waiver and then look for a job. No, um, the exact opposite. You get the job, look at what's available to you, look to see if they qualify for a waiver. Next question, we have a lovely doctor married to an American citizen. You live in different state. Uh, yeah, that requires hardship waivers. We like to have um, consultations. So the facts vary. There are certain guideposts um, for that. The Canadian exception. Okay, once again, if you are a Canadian citizen, you may commence employment in H-1B status, that means secure the approval of the petition and start work without a waiver. Eventually, in order to get a green card, you will have to get a waiver, but if you don't, it's a highly oversubscribed state for the state 30 waivers and you can't go the federal route, then you want to take, then you will want to use the Canadian exception. The next question is, can you stay in the job right after residency if you're uh, a Canadian? Um, no, you get your 30-day grace period if it's a J, and if you're on an A during your training on an H, then you need to get out. You can work forever on an H without a waiver if you're a Canadian citizen, um, but you will have to waive the six-year limit along before six years to extend it. Is it too late for specialists to apply for the 2022 cycle. Heavens, no, no, no. The waiver period hasn't even opened yet. Some states are opening in August. I think Missouri's opening in August, but you can probably do a DR wa a waiver in much of Missouri. Uh, no, absolutely not. It hasn't said, it only starts October 1st. Although, as I said, Texas opens early, Missouri opens early, Texas, September. Okay, next question. If I do a residency fellowship and then go to a country different than from your country of last residence, remember it's country of last residence, not last permanent residence, and then come back, what kind of job should I look for? Well, you don't get to come back at all until you do two years in the right country. So then you're coming back to look for a waiver job if you leave and don't go to the right country. Remember that the Schengen countries are considered separate countries. If you 
your your letter of need and your country of residence is Spain. You can't do your two years in the Netherlands, for example. Oregon, question about Oregon. It's a great state to do a waiver, plenty of time to do the process. Uh, they don't use up their waivers early. What are the competitive states to look out for Conrad 30 this year, especially for hospitalists? Okay, as I said, virtually all hospitalist positions are going to be out, especially for hospitalists. You are eligible for HHS waivers if the hospital where you're going to work has a HIPSA shortage score of greater than seven. And you will, you will actually uh, look at the website that we gave you to find out the HIPSA score. So that, that means you're, you have all year to find a job, basically. Um, specialists should avoid California because they just never get around to them. So that's probably everybody else does. And um, some states try to be stingy. Remember, D.C. never uses up its 30 waivers. They don't even come close, so you're welcome to D.C. Maryland has a good waiver program, as does Virginia. New Jersey's program takes a very, very long time, but they're a good program, and they're trying to get better. Philip asks, what is direct patient care? Does that include teaching? Oh, we get very technical here. That would be a no on the teaching. Analysis of labs for a patient. That, ooh, that's testing my medical knowledge. Certainly, if I would think so, but I'm not going to say that. Uh, call out results. You know, common sense there. Is there going to be a direct patient care police force checking up on you? Usually not. They don't want to see you doing, you know, non-direct patient care the majority of your time. Okay, next question is a baby question. All right. Graduating June 22, if she is due for a baby in February, my husband has a green card. Should you apply for a waiver now? Uh, it depends on what kind of waiver. I'm not sure what the baby question is. We may have to extend your residency. No, there's no reason to apply for a waiver now unless you're talking about hardship or persecution, which uh, maternity leave would not affect. Okay, here is somebody who is lucky have three job offers from academic institution in Boston, New York, and Detroit. We can't say Boston, and we didn't discuss that. They, they closed their program in January. Again, it would be, you would have to do a justification. You're correct. New York, the, the other disadvantage of New York and that they get twice as many waivers, almost twice as many waiver slots as they have waivers for. Um, is that they don't give out the results till April. So they become very unattractive. Again, with hospitalists being siphoned off into HHS for a good many opportunities, um, you may want to try. Probably Boston, you'll have a better chance. Um, but it, this person said they're a pain, pain management specialist, but didn't say what their primary, what their underlying residency was. Best waiver option for a backup plan? That's hard to answer. It could be an HHS waiver. They're still giving out waivers as we speak for people who finished in June. Illinois HIPSA scores are equal. Somebody's asking a question about Illinois. Um, but the person who asked the question didn't tell me they're a specialist. Um, I'm assuming that they don't qualify for an HHS waiver as a hospitalist or primary care. If you're going in, you must go into the Illinois lottery. Um, possibly your chances are generally better with a low HIPSA score rather than a flex slot. It depends. The head of the Illinois program is a very great person and very fair. You cannot apply for more than one interested government agency waiver at a time be it a Conrad State 30 or HHS or, or DRA or ARC, one at a time. However, you can simultaneously apply for a federal IGA or hardship and persecution. Um, somebody asked a great question. Past data, number of applicants for Conrad 30 in each state. 
they used to used to know we roughly know we have an informal reporting program among immigration attorneys who represent physicians uh, and it's basically a reporting in we generally know if you have a state you want to ask nebraska never fills dc never fills montana never fills idaho never fills um you know nebraska i don't know if i said nebraska why does everyone avoid washington dc they don't a lot of it is educating the employers and we're working on having a program to educate employers. I think it's the medical culture. Okay, we have 21 new messages. Let me go through and answer the ones that I think will be common to everybody. Um, okay, latest time to file a waiver. Today you can file if you finish June 30th, you're on a federal one, okay. Is Pennsylvania good for hospitals? Again. Hopefully it's in the state 30, pro, not in the state 30 program, it's cumbersome. What is a decent HIPSA score for a flex waiver for Conrad 30? Is it state dependent? First of all, a flex waiver is not, has no HIPSA or MUA score because it's not in an underserved area. Next question. Again, emergency medicine doesn't qualify for HHS yet. If you want to apply for a hardship waiver based on marriage to a USC, you don't have to be living together at the time of the application necessarily. Yes, you can apply for political asylum, persecution, hardship, and all those other waivers. Next question we have. Okay, the last question. Can I apply for BA and Conrad State 30 at the same time? No. One federal or state at a time. So let me make that clear because before I had it four times here. So federal interested government agency waivers are meant to mean federal agency waivers such as HHS, ARC, DRA, and the VA. And then there are the state 30 waivers. So those are all, I mean, those are all under the umbrella of interested government agency waivers. I see my timekeeper says our time has come to an end. I want you to have the rest of the day to go out and have your favorite ice cream and make Amber ever so happy. Again, we're going to have another uh, webinar and we will be sending you the invitation. It will be in September. Uh, and great luck on your waiver jobs and feel free to email us with any questions you might have and, or to set up a consultation. See you all soon and have a great day. And thanks so much for attending and your wonderful work waging war on COVID. Bye.